Good morning. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Last Sunday, Pastor Jeff talked to us about the difference it made on that very first resurrection day when Jesus came into the room. The disciples were huddled together in a room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. They were afraid they'd be coming to get them next. Fast forward just two or three months later, and we find a very different story. Listen to what Luke tells us in the fifth chapter of Acts. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Excuse me. Well, very different men than those men huddled together in that room, afraid for their lives. What had happened? How did they get from that frightened group of men to these men who were so emboldened that they could stand up and challenge the high priest himself and the Sanhedrin? Well, let's talk a little bit about who these people were, okay? because we, I think we can't fully understand the story or appreciate it unless we know who we're talking about. The Sanhedrin were the rulers of the Jews. And whenever you're reading the Gospels and there's a reference to the Jews, that's who they're talking about. Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were all Jews. But the term the Jews in the New Testament does not refer to Jesus, his disciples, or any of the common people. It referred to this powerful group of leaders. The high priest, who happened to be Caiaphas that year, was a Sadducee. There were two parties, sort of like our Democrats and Republicans. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They had somewhat different beliefs, and they sort of went back and forth. One year, one of them would be in power. Excuse me. Another year, the other would be in power, okay? The high priest was the single most powerful man, and he and the circle that were close to him were the powers that be. They were the ones who had had Jesus turned over to Pilate to be crucified. So you see, it's quite remarkable that here, just two or three months later, we find 
the disciples standing up to these very people who had had Jesus crucified and challenging them. When they were called up, Peter and the other apostles answered, we must obey God, not, human, not mere human beings. And they went on to declare the truth of the resurrection. It was the God of our ancestors, the one whom these leaders professed to represent, who had raised Jesus from the dead. Now, did I mention that the Sadducees believed there was no resurrection? You could see how this would get to them. They pointed out their guilt. They said to their very faces, you killed him. Now the Romans did the deed, but it was the Jews, the Jewish leaders who had handed him over and almost insisted that he be killed that God had not only raised him from the dead, but exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. To the Jewish mind, this was the ultimate seat of all power, the very right hand of God. They, the apostles, were witnesses to these things. And what's more, the Holy Spirit whom God had given to those who obey him, is also witness. <clears throat> had we been there, we might well have asked, who are these men, and what have you done with Peter, James, John, and the rest? To find out, we have to see what happened to these men between that resurrection night, when the risen Jesus came into the room with them, and their confrontation with the Sanhedrin, as told in Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> so let's take a look at what happened in three parts. First, what Jesus did. Secondly, what the disciples did. And thirdly, what God the Father did. Jesus did this. Because the resurrection was proof that the Son of God Jesus was the Son of God, there could be no doubt whatsoever in the hearts and minds of the apostles that he had risen from the dead. Had Jesus appeared to only one or two of them, or only on one or two occasions, later on they might have said, well, you know, I think I saw him. It was real at the time. But doubt might have arisen in their minds. But that was not the case. Because Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus appeared to his followers at different times to different people over a period of 40 days. On that first resurrection day, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And although we don't have a firm account of it, apparently sometime that day to Simon Peter. Luke tells us about it, as does Paul in Corinthians. And then he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't even recognize until he broke bread. And then they knew and rushed back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Finally, that evening, he appeared to the eleven who were gathered together, and the others with them, there were undoubtedly others, as they were together on that night of the resurrection. 
all in one day. A week later, he appeared to the disciples again, including Thomas, this time, who wasn't with them the first time. And then sometime later, we don't know exactly when, early one morning, as the disciples came back from a night out fishing, Jesus met them on the shore. And on that occasion, he spoke to them. He cooked for breakfast for them. He invited them to eat with him. And he taught them. And then 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared to the disciples and many others at his ascension, somewhere on a hilltop near Bethany. And at some point, we really don't know when, it could have been at the ascension, but in his letters to the Corinthians, Paul said that Jesus appeared to 500 followers of Jesus at the same time, and that many were still alive at the time of Paul's writing. This was some 40, 50 years later at the most. This may have been at his ascension, but whether it was or not, he appeared to over 500 people. You see, there were not just one or two or even 12 witnesses. There were a great host of witnesses who could say and testify, Jesus has risen from the dead. We know because we saw him and we heard him. And then Jesus not only showed that he was alive, but that he had bodily been raised from the dead. In other words, he was not a ghost. He showed them his hands and his feet and invited them to touch him. He said, look at my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He ate with them. While they still could not believe it because of joy and amazement, he took a piece of broiled fish and ate it in their presence. And then, as I mentioned before, later on he met the disciples on the shore, prepared a breakfast, fed them, and ate with them. Jesus had risen and he had a body. Then Jesus taught them and he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Now, they'd been walking with him for three years. They knew his voice. They knew his teaching. So this was not new. But there was something different. It says that Jesus opened their minds to understand. Do you know how many times Jesus tried to tell them that he was going to die? And yet they were still taken by surprise. They didn't believe, they couldn't get their minds around that. It didn't, it didn't compute. But now it says that Jesus taught them and opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He did it with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says that he opened up and showed them from the Moses on through the prophets how the Messiah had to be crucified and that he would rise again. And later they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he taught us? He taught the 11 and others when he appeared in the room with them. And later on the shore, 
Luke sums it up this way. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. By the time Jesus left to ascend to his father, there could be no doubt in any of their minds that Jesus had risen from the dead. Finally, he gave his disciples a commission, a promise and a command. The commission was this, you are to be my witnesses of these things. The promise, I am going to send you what my father promised. Now this was what he had told them before his death, but they didn't really comprehend. He said, it's really important that I go away because if I don't, then the Father can't hold the Spirit, send the Holy Spirit, but he will, and he'll be with you and in you. And finally, a command. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Well, what did the disciples do? They went to Jerusalem. They did what Jesus said. They gathered together to wait for what he had promised. Now, I wonder what they were expecting. <laughs> Up to this time, nothing had happened like they were expecting it to. Perhaps by this time, instead of speculating, they simply said, let's just wait and see what happens next. At any rate, Luke tells us in Acts 1 that immediately following Jesus' ascension, they returned to Jerusalem. They went upstairs to the room where they were staying. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And earlier at the end of his gospel, Luke had said, then they worshipped him, this was at the ascension, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And I would add one more, although it's not explicitly stated in Scripture, it's certainly implied. I believe they continued to search the Scripture and seek God's will through what they found there. And here's why I believe this. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the Holy, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas. For it is written in the Psalms, may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose someone who had been with us from, since the beginning, to take his place. For one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. They searched the scriptures. 
They found what they understood to be God's will, and they acted upon it. So we can sum up what the disciples did during this time of waiting in this way. They obeyed, they stayed, they prayed, they praised, they searched the scriptures. Good pattern for us to follow today while we're waiting on God. Well, what did God do? God sent the Holy Spirit just as he said he would. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. God, through the Holy Spirit, came. He cleansed and empowered them. First of all, he purified their hearts. The tongues of fire throughout Scripture are a symbol of God's refining and purifying power. And Peter explicitly stated this in Acts 15. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, meaning the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter's testimony. And then the Holy Spirit empowered them for service. On that first day when the Holy Spirit first came, they literally spilled out into the street. And the people who were gathered in Jerusalem at that time for the Feast of Pentecost, and they came from all over the known world then, they heard the apostles speaking in their own languages. These were not unknown tongues. They were languages spoken so that everyone who heard could understand what they were saying. Peter preached a powerful sermon by the power of the Spirit. And 3,000 believed and were baptized on that single day. Not only did the Holy Spirit empower the the apostles themselves for service, but he empowered the believers to live as kingdom people. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? How Jesus said, this is the way the kingdom of God is. And how did you respond as you read that? How do you think those people responded? We know how the disciples responded. How can anybody do this? It seems impossible, doesn't it? And yet we read in Acts of the believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone around them was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the fellowship of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. The kingdom of God on earth being lived through ordinary people filled with the Holy Spirit. Before his death, Jesus had told his disciples that it was necessary for him to leave, but he would not leave them alone. He would ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit who would be in them. Do you see how the pattern of uh, the apostles' ministry followed that of Jesus? The coming of the Holy Spirit enabled the apostles to take up Jesus' mission. Jesus said that he was going to, they were going to do even greater things than he had done, and it seemed impossible. They, they so did not understand. They were so helpless, so weak. But now, the Holy Spirit became the presence and power of God presence and power of Jesus himself within them, working through them to draw men and women to himself. Now, just as Jesus had predicted, they would suffer persecution just as he did. The disciples were no longer hiding behind closed doors. The believers were meeting together daily in the temple where the leaders of the Jews could keep a close eye on them. These things were not done behind closed doors. Peter and John were preaching the good news about Jesus and performing miracles just as Jesus had, causing even more people to believe and praise God. And the excitement of the crowds attracted the attention of the Jewish leaders who thought that they had solved their problem by having Jesus put together. So in Acts 4, we find Peter and John being summoned before these very rulers, elders and teachers of the law. Caiaphas, who was high priest that that year and members of his family, the same men who had put Jesus to death, they wanted to know by what power or authority they had healed a lame man. Just exactly the same questions they'd asked Jesus when he was doing it. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must 
be saved. Wow. Peter didn't pull any punches, did he? Just as had happened in Jesus' ministry, the leaders could not deny the miracle, so they told Peter and John not to preach in this name anymore. They threatened them and let them go. Now, what do you suppose happened next? Did Peter and John say, go home saying, wow, did we show those guys, and sit back on their laurels? Not a chance. It says they went back to the believers, reported everything that had happened, and they prayed. Not that God would protect them or make the leaders stop bothering them, but that God would enable them to continue to speak boldly, that he would continue to heal and perform miraculous signs through the name of Jesus. And Luke reports that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoken and spoke the word of God boldly. You see, the Holy Spirit came, was outpoured on them on the day of Pentecost, but that was just an initial outpouring. He continued to be poured out into the lives of the disciples as they expended his energy in ministry. What's the lesson for us? Well, when God gives a great victory, it's not the time to sit back in the glory of it all and say, well, isn't it wonderful how God worked? Praise God. Isn't he great? Rather, like Peter and John and the others, we need to double down in prayer, asking God to enable us to faithfully continue to obey him so that he can continue to work through us. And in Acts, Luke goes on, so the believers continued to live together in a remarkable unity of spirit. And the apostles continued to pray, preach, and perform miracles in Jesus' name. As more men and women believe, and the number of believers continues to grow, people began to lay the sick in the street so that Peter's shadow would fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered from the surrounding towns began to bring their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And all of them, all of them were healed. Isn't this what happened when Jesus was doing ministry and preaching and teaching? Exactly. Jesus had said, when I go, the Holy Spirit will come and you will do the same things and even greater things. It was happening. Well, as you can imagine, the Jewish leaders were watching all this, and they were not happy. Luke reports that once again, they had the apostles arrested and put in jail overnight. But God had other plans. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people, all about this new life. The daybreak, they entered the temple courts and as they had been told, began to teach. 
the people. Well, the Sanhedrin, now this was the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Picture Congress, you know, the little inner group were the real power brokers, but they'd called a full session of the Sanhedrin. They send for the prisoners to be brought in. Then the report comes back. Well, we went, but the doors were locked, the guards were all in place, but the jail was empty. Well, they were scratching their heads and probably shaking in their shoes, wondering what all this meant. And someone came in and said, the men you put in jail are in the temple teaching the people. So the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God has exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey them. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Judas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied around him. But he was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in, re in revolt. But he too was killed, and all his followers scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged this time. Then they ordered them again not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So what does all this say to you and me this morning? After all, none of us was an eyewitness to Jesus' life, death, and res resurrection. 
None of us is called to be an apostle. True enough. But as believers, we are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus the Christ. That is, we are to grow to be like him. We are to become like him so that when people see us, they see not us, but the love and the character and the spirit of Jesus himself. I don't know who you are this morning. I know some of you. I know some of you have walked with Jesus for a long time. Others of you, I don't know at all. Maybe you're just beginning your faith journey. Maybe you've not even made the decision yet to believe on the Lord. But no matter who we are or where we are in our faith journey, Jesus calls us to believe on him, to be filled with his spirit, to grow in Christ-likeness, and to be his witnesses. None of us is outside that calling. It is for all who profess the name of Christ. In Romans, the 12th chapter, Paul makes it clear that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to every believer. And each one of us is to use our gift, whatever it happens to be, willingly and diligently to build up the body of Christ. That is, the church. All who believe in Jesus' name. And it's only as we do this that the church will be whole as each of us do our part and support the rest. And it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us that we can fulfill this call. You may not be called to preach like Peter was or like I have been, but God has gifted you and called you for something. And no matter what it is, you should be doing it faithfully in the power of his spirit. There's an old song that goes something like this. If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus and say he died for all. What will you do with Jesus' call this morning? Will you be among those who answer his call to follow him? Will you say yes to obedience, no matter the cost? If so, the promise that he will be with you in the person of the Holy Spirit is for you. And when he comes in and takes up residence, though you cannot know where he will lead, you can know that he will be with you and you will be witness to his resurrection to his love and grace wherever you go, whether in Nashua, surrounding towns, wherever you happen to live, here in New England, across the U.S., or even beyond. Jesus will be with you in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he will use you according to his plan and purpose and you will be witnesses. This is God's word to us this morning.